Welcome to the Leaders in Life Sciences podcast, powered by Interay Life Sciences Consulting. In this podcast, you'll hear from leaders in the life sciences industry, how they grew into their current roles, the lessons they learned along the way, and advice for those aspiring to follow in their footsteps. I am the host. My name is Mike Verletic, and I'm the CEO of Interay Life Sciences Consulting. At Interay, we help leaders orchestrate the positive change they want to see in their organization. Are you ready to be recognized for your leadership success? Take a listen. Okay, welcome to the Leaders in Life Sciences podcast. My name is Mike Verletic, and I'm the CEO of Enteray Life Sciences Consulting. Excited to have you here today for our show. I want to first welcome Courtney Boudreaux, our co-host. Welcome, Courtney. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. Awesome, awesome. And today we have a second co-host, Danny Petronik. Welcome, Danny. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. It's great to be here. Great to have everybody here. And uh, we'll introduce our guest in a second. I'm really excited about our guest today. But first, you know, the time of this recording, at least, I know it's probably going to be a little while before people actually hear this, but we're right around St. Patrick's Day. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that. What about you guys? Yeah, it's always a super fun holiday. I always remember as a kid, I would always have to wear green to school so you don't get pinched. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be mean, but yeah, it's super fun. I don't remember Very that good. one, Courtney, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> really? You don't remember getting pinched? Oh. No, I've heard that from a couple people, and I must have just missed the memo on that one, but apparently it was a thing. <laughs> yeah, a that's thing. right. It's always very worried about that. So, And when you'd forget, you'd always say, no, I've got green underwear on or something. <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> Well, cool. Well, hey, as a tribute to our guest, I went and did some research on St. Patrick's Day on a website called Katie Talks Carolina. Our guest today is from uh, one of the Carolinas. But uh, I've got a couple of uh, interesting uh, potential myths or facts about St. Patrick's Day for you guys. And let me know what you think. First one here is among St. Patrick's many accomplishments is he banished snakes from Ireland. Myth or fact? I want to say fact because that's what I've always heard, but it also sounds too good to be true, like banishing snakes. <laughs> they probably Very weren't good. in place. So, what do you think, Danny? I I'm going to say true. That's what I've always heard. Although what I've heard about St. Patrick's Day has proven to be inaccurate so far. So who knows? <laughs> What's really funny is I I've heard a lot about St. Patrick's Day, but never the real story apparently. But uh, it is. Well, according to Katie, who talks Carolina, this is a myth. And apparently snakes were never on Ireland and because they can't get there, right? So a myth there. Wow. All right. Number two, in an ironic twist, until the 1970s, Ireland mandated that pubs be closed on St. Patrick's Day. Oh. Myth or fact? <laughs> it has to be a myth, right? I would say it's a fact because I think that's why America overcompensates. <laughs> 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 that uh, I don't know if that's why, but it is a fact. I, I think actually uh, it was a religious holiday, so it became uh, like a holiday holiday, and the pubs were not allowed to be open and stuff. So yeah, as long as long as I can remember, the pubs are always open on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one here. Uh, full-grown leprechauns are about two feet tall. I want to say that's a myth because leprechauns are actually inches tall. Because when I was a kid, my brother and I used to build leprechaun traps every Thanksgiving, or not Thanksgiving, (laughs) wow, St. Patrick's Day. And yeah, it was just whatever we could find in the backyard, and we had a strategy. And I think my brother 
was still too young to figure it out, but I knew better, but we still built the leprechaun trap. So in my world, they are like maybe a foot high. Okay. What do you think, Danny? Two feet tall? I'm going to defer to Courtney and I'm recalling the movies I've seen. And I think they were all like, you know, you could hold them in your hands. So I'm going to stick with Courtney that they're smaller than two feet. All right. Well, this is kind of a trick question because according to Katie on Katie Talks Carolina, they are about two feet tall, but are there really leprechauns? I guess is the, is that, is that the myth? So, so we'll see. One day we'll have, if you, if you get a hold of one, be sure to get the pot of gold. <laughs> so we always used to have a bucket with a stick and then I used to distract Dylan and I'd go kick the stick and I'd be like, oh my God, the, the trap went off. And it was never there. And it's because they're magical and they teleport out. That's right. And still, I saw it and I would describe it. And so, yeah, well, we'll have to keep trying, Mike. That's right. All right. Last one here. Okay. The original shamrock shake contains actual shamrocks. Myth. Myth. Of course, it's a myth. There's no shamrocks in the shamrock shake. It's all just a famous recipe. All right. Well, thank you again to Katie Talks Carolina. You know, there is a special recipe for a shamrock shake on Katie Talks Carolina. We'll have to put that in the show notes. Courtney, what do you think about that? Yeah. Mint and chip ice cream. I love it. I love it. That's my favorite shake, by the way, is shamrock shake. So, well, exciting stuff. You all know I am Irish by education and my middle initial is O. So I am Michael O for Lettick. So that's why I love (laughs) St. Patrick's Day so much. But all that. And uh, it's time for us now to move on to our guest. I'm really excited to have uh, our guest today. Looking forward to hearing uh, all the insights that we're going to gather. Our guest today is Paul Garofolo. Paul is the CEO and co-founder of Locust Biosciences. And with a career that spans manufacturing, research and development, information technology, and corporate transformations, Paul has a broad range of experience and capability that's going to help him deliver on the Locust vision. Prior to Locust, Paul was Chief Technology Officer at Patheon Pharmaceuticals, and also held the role of Global Head of Operations for Patheon's Pharmaceuticals Development Services Business Unit. He previously served as the Global Head of Manufacturing and Chief Information Officer at Valiant Pharmaceuticals, among other roles. Paul was a visiting professor at North Carolina State University's Poole College of Management and volunteered as an executive in residence for the High Tech Graduate Program, which is NC State's Entrepreneurship Collaborative. And that is where he identified the technology that would form the basis for Locus. Paul earned a BSBA in Management Information Systems from the University of Arizona, go Wildcats, and completed the Advanced Management Program at Harvard Business School. So without further ado, please welcome our guest, Paul Garofolo. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to all you guys, Courtney, Danny. Nice to meet you all. Yeah. Great having you. Tell us, us, uh, let's get started. Tell us a little bit about uh, how did you get to like where you're at today, leading Locus through this uh, amazing uh, journey? I was trying to think of a joke to tie back to your St. Patrick's Day thing. It certainly wasn't, let's say, uh, green underwear or getting pinched in, in high school. It might have had something to do with drinking with you, Mike, while we were at Ernst & Young early in our career. Probably so. I guess that's a different story for a, a different podcast. But <laughs> That's right. I guess just by way of sort of an intro in the locus, I mean, it was sort of a little bit of serendipity. I was really just working at NC State as an exec in residence, and you know, this PhD candidate walked in the door with this invention called CRISPR-Cas3. And you know, I think it, it was it was a payload without a delivery vector, so it was kind of a PhD idea without a home for a little while. And we started to work together not only with the PhD candidates, but with the professors that sort of surrounded that person 
and we pretty rapidly started to you know point towards well what what could we combine together here to get this delivered into the human body and what what could we do with it and you know lo and behold we sort of became really really clear that the enzyme itself worked like a a pac-man much like the old arcade game that's kind of the best way to explain it to folks on a podcast you just point it towards something and if it if it if it found the right address it would just chew back the you know target genome of, of that bacteria cell and then trying to figure out how to pay how to deliver that payload without well, that was another saga of a bunch of different types of which over time you know bacteriophage which is a virus came to be the one that was the winning formula yeah the early days of the company were really fun after 25 years of working in <laughs> you know, big pharma, so to speak, to be back on a university campus, you know, playing around with Petri dishes and professors was, was actually pretty cool. And we spent about six to nine months at the universities before we decided we had to kind of get serious about it and put some real money behind it and, and start the business. But anyway, that's a, a little bit of the story of how we all got started. That's great. That's great. Now, um, maybe uh, just for, for those, those of us not completely informed about CRISPR and phage technology. Maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, tell us about CRISPR, tell us about phage. So I don't know how, how scientifically oriented your audience is. Luckily, I'm not a PhD, so I can only describe it in uh, layman's terms. So it's probably perfect. I mean, a bacteria cell is a single cell organism, right? I mean, the idea is that everything that it needs to survive and evolve has to be contained within that cell. And so, of course, it, it has an immune system. In fact, it has a couple different immune systems. But one of the ones that's best known is, is CRISPR. And so people know CRISPR as a gene editing tool. It's not actually its biological origins. Its biological origins are, it, it is a single cell bacterial organism's defense system. There's a bunch of different enzymes that it could use depending on the type of CRISPR system it has to defend itself. The one that's most prevalent in about 50% of the known CRISPR systems that are out there are these Cas3 enzymes, which work like a Pac-Man. And I think somewhere between 12 and 15%, somewhere in that general range is, is Cas9. And I think Cas9 is very well known, obviously. It works like a molecular pair of scissors and has sparked a whole generation of, of new innovations but Cas3, I think, is, is just much less known, even though it's more dominant in nature. So, you know, the way CRISPR works, it essentially has an RNA guide, which is, you could think of as, as a, something that finds an address. And when it, when it finds that address, it, it recruits uh, essentially the rest of the, of the CRISPR system and the associated tool or enzyme to do some function. But its primary function is to defend its, its, its main, you know, host. So what we've figured out how to do is basically pull that machinery out of a bacteria cell and embed it into the genome of a virus and essentially port it to other targets, taking that same defense mechanism and pointing it where we might want it to be. How's that for a quick and dirty biology and on, on CRISPR and bacteria? Pretty good. Pretty good. And I yeah, definitely uh, appreciate the layman's, layman's version versus the PhD version. So, <laughs> yeah, it's super excellent. So, you mentioned something about gene editing with CRISPR Cas9, which is what we more commonly hear in the news and the media. So, we know CRISPR Cas9 is a very new, hot technology with an incredible amount of potential, but 
It can also be a little bit controversial with some of those ethical implications involved. So how does Locus address that in the way you're applying your technology to to bacterial cells and as an antibiotic alternative? That's a great question. So Locus is exclusively focused on bacterial targets, not human cells. So we actually we don't have the ability through our, our viruses, bacteriophage, which I guess we could do a quick bio lesson on too. But those particular viruses cannot bind to and or infect, or in, in this case, inject the CRISPR-Cas3 payload into a human cell. It's probably the world's safest microscopic syringe because it only binds to and, and delivers its payload to a bacteria cell. And at, at that, so maybe a quick step back. So over billions and billions of years, bacteria have evolved on the planet. And like all organisms on the planet, you have predators and you have prey. And the reality is, is bacteriophage is the predator to bacteria as prey. And so over billions and billions of years, trillions of bacteriophages have evolved to attack and and really maintain, I guess, viable amounts of, of the target bacteria that they're paired to. And so I always sort of explain it, it's kind of a weird one, but, you know, lions on a prairie with zebra, the lion does not kill all of the zebra, or it would then die from having no food. So <laughs> at some point, you know, you reach this in nature, you reach this sort of natural level of balance and the predators back off of the prey, either because they're full, you know, or there's not enough food present. And so it, you sort of the idea is to keep populations under control. That happens at a microscopic level between bacteriophage and bacteria. And so most people as well aren't really aware how much bacteria is floating around a human body, but it is a lot, depending on what time of day you know, somewhere between maybe 60, even upwards of 70, 80% of the cells that are in your body are bacteria. And the bacteriophage are also in there floating around. So actually, if you think about it, you know, CRISPR-Cas3, when delivered through a bacteriophage, doesn't have any way to edit a human being. And so we're sort of completely removed from that ethical concern. And thankfully so. I don't think I'd really enjoy answering that question. <laughs> we were in the ballpark of editing human genes. Of course. Fair enough. So I have a question for you, Paul. I noticed, or it sounds like there's applications right now that's focused on infectious disease, but are you looking at other applications for this technology? Yeah, we actually, we're looking at them in two different ways. So I think if we look at using CRISPR-Cas3 to remove bacteria that's not pathogenic, in your body. Maybe a great example would be ulcerative colitis. So, you know, the, and we don't know whether it's good bacteria that might be in the intestines or bad bacteria, quote unquote, that would be in the intestines. But I think it's pretty commonly understood that the immune system is attacking likely bacteria in your body, which is not essentially shutting down. And through long-term attack of your immune system, you, you get inflammation, lesions, all kinds of horrific, you know, therapeutic uh, side effects, if you will. And so we think that if we can target the right bacteria in the intestines to get it removed with this tool, that we might be able to get the immune system to calm down. And if we can do that, 
and the immune system stops attacking, then in theory, the inflammation, the lesions, the rest of the damage that the immune system is causing inside the body should relax. We're pretty excited about taking the technology and moving from infectious disease into immunology. We think there's a broad swath of, of potential indications and ailments that the, that the platform could be used for. You know, honestly, science is just beginning to learn. You know, now that the veil of antibiotics is kind of coming down, what bacteria's role in the body really is. And I think there's a definitive role for removing certain bad actors selectively while leaving all of the good actors in place. And I think we're probably one of the only modalities in the world that specifically targets selective removal of bacteria. So there's a broad, hopeful uh, field of therapeutic areas that we can hopefully port the technology. Sounds like, you know, all of those very strong, broad spectrum antibiotics that have led us to, you know, MRSA or methicillin resistant staph or VRE, vancomycin resistant, I think it's enterococcus, but all of those, you know, broad spectrum, highly toxic antibiotics can essentially fall by the wayside potentially with, with your new technology. So I think it's awesome and could result in amazing clinical outcomes for those patients affected by by those diseases. Yeah, and you're on to something there. I think we even think about it one step further. When you think about advanced diseases, for lack of a better way to describe them, I don't think the common person understands the volume of antibiotics that are involved in all treatments. So take, take cancer treatments. Typically, before a patient undergoes even at this point, sort of older therapies like chemotherapy, doctors tend to use high amounts of antibiotics to pretreat those patients and really effectively blow out their microbiomes entirely, just trying to clear out all the potential infections before then you go under radiation treatment. So you, you leave radiation really beat down. And so that's why they tell you you're immune compromised. You need to kind of stay at home. You can't really go out. Don't be around, you know, grandkids. You know, these types of things are not only from what radiation did to you, but from long-term antibiotic pretreatments. And that's true for checkpoint inhibitors, you know, like Keytruda or Opdivo. That, that's true for gene editing technologies. Like you, you don't really realize this, but many, many times before the treatment, and of, of an advanced disease, it, you go under 14, 21, sometimes even 28 days of antibiotic treatment before you even get to the therapy that your doctor's after. And what we've been beginning to find, especially in the world of precision medicine, is low drug response rates. And so, you know, average drug response of checkpoint inhibitors is quite poor, certainly well below 50%. And there may very well be a, a need to eliminate antibiotics from that pretreatment if you had viable antibacterial treatments that could deal with the infections that do come along for the, for the ride. It's not uncommon for a cancer patient to get a urinary tract infection or a respiratory infection. What's maybe not understood as well is, you know, if, let's say you're on Keytruda for two years and it's working and you, you end up getting a urinary tract infection for some reason, you know, maybe they, they hit you with nitro for 14 days. You typically, I shouldn't say typically, I, I mean, you'll have to go to the data yourself, but you have a high probability of being knocked off Keytruda. So I think the field of science is beginning to try to look at 
well, what is the collateral damage that's really involved from taking these antibiotics? And I think it's far more broad than what you might originally think. And I think time will tell, but I think there's a much bigger need for a replacement for antibiotics than just the treatment of MDR. That's great, Steph. I know, uh, like my wife has a, a dairy allergy. Not she's not lactose intolerant, but like just what you described, she can drink milk is fine or yogurt or whatever. Um, but over time, it start her body starts to attack her immune system because of it. So exactly what you just described, she deals with. So she has to eliminate that from her diet. But uh, yeah, those are some things that yeah, that'd be great to great to see that application. I was going to switch gears here, but just maybe get a little bit more into your, your personal experience in terms of the startup and whatnot and, you know, kind of looking back in 2015, is that, is that right? When he started things up? 2015. 2015, like seven, almost seven years. Yeah, I can't believe it's been seven years. When you look back on things, are, are, there, are there things maybe in that early time period that you say, I could have done something differently or you wish you, wish you would have done something differently? I should have dyed my hair, Mike, is what I should have done. I, I, think hey, I, I don't dye my hair. This, this is natural. Right, right. <laughs> I got to figure out whatever you're doing. No, there's, you know, look, there's always, I think when you look back on any portion of your life, there's always things that you probably wish, you know, you could you could know maybe if had you done something differently, what, what would be the outcome? I'm not sure I'd change much, um, to be honest with you. I'm yeah. confident if I did it again, I wouldn't do it the same way. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some of those things would be the original sort of startup licenses that kicked the whole thing off. You know, maybe some of the initial, you know, early players who both were involved with the company or investors that kind of came around the table. But I mean, honestly, I think all of them and anytime you're in one of these, they're all learning, too. And that, that's actually part of the fun. Yeah. Is sort of learning together all these different pieces. I don't think any of the decisions that we made in the early days are stopping us from being successful today by any stretch. And a lot of them have made us stronger, you know, whether you wanted to do them or, or, or not. Yeah. But I, I think there's those pieces. I do think, you know, there are sacrifices that you make in the early, early days of a company in terms of probably how broadly you apply your platform based off of how much money you do or don't have. And platforms are very different in my mind than individual assets. And so I suppose my biggest regret was not fanning out beyond infectious disease at a far earlier time in the company. I mean, look, when we started the company, Cubis just sold the Merck for $7.5 billion, right? Like we were, woohoo, this is going to be great, right? In the next 24 months, you had just about every strategic pharma exit the space. Within another two years, you had multiple bankruptcies from pretty much all these like third and fourth generation small molecules failing out, you know, and it, it became a very difficult space. And had we fanned out earlier, and we might have had a, a couple more legs to stand on. Nice. But I mean, that, that being said, you know, we, you know, this pretty well, Mike, but we fanned out towards services, and not necessarily towards other therapeutic areas so that we could bring in revenues so that those revenues could, you know, basically supplant the need for outside investors. So we basically, we built a going entity instead of going into the beg and burn, as I like to call it, where you're out with venture begging for money and burning it down and then going back out and begging for money and burning it down. <laughs> we decided we had to do it a different way here. And I think we have a lot more stable operational organization that 
to sort of benefit from as we now move into, you know, moving out into these other therapeutic areas, we're essentially funding that ourselves, which may not be as fast as you might like it, but it's quite sound in the way that we're able to expand. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a thousand other lessons I could focus in on, but you know, maybe those two are the best. Yeah. I I love the answer that, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't change anything like, Hey, you learned not everything was perfect, but you know, you learned a lot along the way, had a lot of great partners going with you. So that's cool. Yeah. I I suppose if you're still in business in seven years in a space you (laughs) want to invest in, you don't have that many complaints about what you did wrong. Right. That's right. That's right. We've, we're, we're doing well, man. We've got a billion dollars of contracts with Johnson & Johnson and the wow. U.S. government. I mean, we're cranking down. We have more revenue than 95% of the publicly traded biotechs that are out there. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, it's it's uh, honestly, Mike, that's probably something to be said about not being an entrepreneur and just being somewhat ignorant about you know what you, what you need to get it done. We really, I mean, we grew up in corporate pharma. Yep. And, you know, you got to make money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You need free cash flow. <laughs> I'm just used to quarterly reporting as well. So, you know, we sort of carried all of that with us into how we built the company. And I think we're in a very different space based off of that. Hey, Courtney, a lot of our clients we work with have great ideas on how to improve their business, but they just run into challenges that seem to get in the way of accomplishing their goals. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, of course. It happens all the time. I've seen clients struggle with a lack of visibility into all the work that's happening within their organization. I've seen clients that are focused on manual tasks, which takes away from focusing on the actual project work. And I've seen leadership struggle to make decisions due to lack of timely information. That's so true. It seems like just knowing the problems to fix is only half the battle. How'd you help your clients address those challenges? Well, we, of course, first work with our client to design a structured management process that fits their culture and team. And in a lot of situations, we bring in tools like Smartsheet to help the entire project team be more efficient. With the help of Smartsheet, we were able to create dashboards, automate routine tasks, and have the information ready in real time to help support leadership's decision making. Wow, it sounds like you not only execute on the project, but your work helps everyone get more done with less work. I hope so. Smartsheet is a powerful tool, and my clients seem to be really happy with it. That's great. Now, if somebody needs help on their project, what should they do? They should check out nra.com and schedule a call with us to see how we can help. Sounds like a great idea. Well, thank you. I think you were touching on some points that I, I definitely wanted to ask more about, which includes, and Mike, you know, maybe you might want to answer this question as well, but what was it like venturing uh, into creating your own company out of kind of the safety of working for a larger <laughs> organization or that kind of secure feeling and taking that risk and making the jump? Well, Mike did it first. You can pick on Mike right now. He probably has some good... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, actually, I'm sure, I mean, Mike, it's probably not that different, right? Like it's it's freeing, to be honest with you, when you, I, I don't know how you ever felt about it, Mike, but I mean, in corporate America, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of, I always tell my people, it's very unique to ever have everybody in the same boat. Everybody has an oar in their hand, every oar's in the water, and we're all rowing in the same direction. That <laughs> is not what you get in corporate America by any stretch. And so navigating all of that and you know, having to do transformations to recover from mistakes, having to do, let's say, 
I guess, big, exciting deals, it would be maybe the other side of that sword uh, of what you don't necessarily have access to. But I think, you know, the sort of the big business, living on an airplane, managing teams. And for me, it was like 14 different countries simultaneously going from that to like, I'm on NC State's campus in shorts and a t-shirt working with professors and students. Like it was really freeing. It was great. It was super fun. It was like, you know, you sort of back to very creative days where anything was possible and you're sort of not beat down over time by, by you know, having to struggle for a couple margin points. And, you know, I, I don't mean to belittle corporate America in any way, shape or form, but I mean, I feel like a 25 year tour of duty was long enough <laughs> for me anyway. And, yeah. you know, seven years in, in the entrepreneurial and emerging space has been super refreshing, super rewarding. It's incredibly difficult. It's much harder it's much less forgiving, but it's also, you know, you're sort of, you know, you and your team are, you're responsible for everything. And that's, at least for me, that was quite freeing to be able to be in control of our own destiny as a team. And believe me, we made mistakes <laughs> and I'm sure we have more in front of us, but we can attack them faster. We're more honest with each other about where we stand. We have no choice, but to power through. And I think that builds, I just, it builds an excitement around a challenge that's a lot more exciting than margin points on 90 day earning calls for me anyway. Yeah. Anyway, that's my take. I, want my, I mean, Mike, you've been doing this longer than me. Yeah. You know, I, Courtney, I, I've been asked that question a lot over the years and like when it, the first time somebody asked that question of me or probably the first few times somebody asked that question of me, I was like, did I really take that big of a risk? And you know, I, I was like, I had, like, I had no idea that I, that that was such a huge risk. And people then asked the second time, I'm like, oh my god, what did I do? You know, and this was like three or four years down the road. But um, yeah, you know, you look back and it is you got to kind of jump, and you don't know what you're going to land on, but you got to take the jump. And you know, things you know obviously worked out from our perspective. But yeah, there is this element of you, you know, you hear all these stories of you're your own boss, you don't have to listen to anybody. And, and Paul will tell you that's it's absolutely not true, right? You know, Paul's got investors and a lot of people that are knocking on his door probably. And, and you know, we've got clients and, and things like that. So there's, there is that side of it. But I, I do like what Paul mentioned there. It's all on your shoulders. And, and that's a good thing and a challenging thing. Everything you, you have total responsibility. I think total control of what you what you can and, and can and or will do in order to address those concerns of people. So the freeing part is you're not necessarily relying on everybody else, right? You have that you have that freedom to do as you think is best and, and push forward. But yeah, I, I do look back on that and go, wow, I guess they're you know, I think back my son was a year and a half old at the time and people are like, Wow, you had a baby? I'm like yeah. Oh my God. What, you know, <laughs> so it's a whole different, whole different ball of wax, but uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and admirable for both of you. I mean, from our perspective, it is a huge jump, but yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to hear that you guys both have similar perspectives and that it's awesome and, and you love it. And I'm sure, well, if there are anxieties, <laughs> you know, you haven't mentioned it, there's always that factor and everything, but it's excellent to hear that, you know, it's positive and you're, happy with the choices so it's there's always stress i mean i think there's yeah. probably more pressure and more stress i mean i i remember 
the day we announced that we started the company, my old boss, Jim Mullen, who used to run Biogen IDEC and then Patheon, he sent me an email and said, you know, I wish you all the best of luck in the world. And I hope you don't have as many sleepless nights about payroll. And I mean, I think that's a CEO's like number one concern. It's mine. It's how many, we actually run a KPI. How many payroll turns do we have in the bank? And that, that number needs to be at a level that Paul can sleep. And, that, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's important. And as the company grows, the payroll burden grows. And so does the bonus burden and all that stuff. That's probably one of my, that's one that does on, on troubling days, it gets you out of bed real fast and gets you to work. That's, there's certainly a stress that comes along with it. But I, I can remember being just as worried about other things as a corporate executive. You know, it's so many problems on that side too, that you control a lot less. That lack of control sometimes is, is, is also really difficult for people to deal with. So I don't know if it's any more or less stressful. It's very just different, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can agree. Like the number one thing Courtney and Danny hopefully appreciate is payroll is number one. Like I can, everything else can, can wait. We got to make sure that happens. Right. So they're like, yes, that's the right answer, Mike. I like that you're paying attention to our payroll. Good. Yes. That's true. <laughs> Paul, we had, um, we were recording a, a previous episode the other week. I was doing rapid fire questions for our games and I asked our co-host, who's your favorite boss? And without missing a beat, he says, Mike Verletic. And we were all laughing so hard. We're like, of course, it's the answer. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Great. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of fun. All right. Hey, Paul, you mentioned a couple of comments ago. You mentioned your partnerships with Barda. And I know you've got a number of investors. You've got, I obviously worked with NC State. These are all different big entities. I'm just curious if you could comment on, like, how do you, how do you deal with what is sure to be like the various personalities, the various perspectives of all these different stakeholders in, in your business? Well, I think you can separate them a bit. Investors are one sort of group of people that you need to deal with. And that's evolved a lot over time, starting with individuals and moving to institutions. And you have, I, I lump sort of government and strategics like Johnson and Johnson, I lump them into basically clients. And then the, I guess you could say the last are sort of either universities or, or, or folks that maybe were from our early days of creating the company and, and moving forward. So, I mean, each one you deal with somewhat differently. The, the universities, honestly, I mean, we sort of pay our royalty slash like contract commitments these days. We, we didn't when we started the, the business, we actually had a, a bunch of things that we licensed and a bunch of things we optioned. And, you know, seven years deep now, we've sort of cleansed all that. We, we know which ones we converted to licenses, which ones we freed up. And now we just sort of pay numbers to people. It, basically, as you probably beyond two years, there wasn't too much of interaction with the universities. You're sort of beyond that, but it, very impactful in the early days. The investors sort of changed as well in the early days, those first two years, a lot of people, a lot of people that you and I both personally know. Yeah. Too, Mike, <laughs> yeah. Because you raise with friends and family, usually to get started. And then you, you'll land early investors, which are kind of local investors. And then you finally hit like a big institutional. And from there, the, the, you know, the board gets, re, re, you know, essentially redone. Players get changed. And, you know, the information rights change. In fact, you need to kind of cut off some information to some of the older 
individual audiences and then move more of your concern to the new ones. But the, I think that all those I find to be very normal for any startup. I think the clients are what's different here. So we have these sort of four major programs. And frankly, there's there's two strategics, not just one. We just can only talk about one. And then there's two sort of government slash government public-private partnership deals that we're in. I credit even all the way back to days of Ernst & Young, Mike, and all the things we've done through the years in providing management consulting services is creating engagement teams for each of those major accounts. It's a team effort and a team problem. So each of those has a, essentially like handshake roles from top to bottom in the company, you know, marrying up clinical teams, CMC teams, discovery and R&D teams, everybody faces off to their appropriate pair inside that organization and our organization. And you run it, we run it like we always did, right? We have steering committees and we have governance bodies and we have each stream has their own teams, their sub teams. And I, I think that's rare. From what I'm finding, like, and I think every partner we come up to, like Johnson & Johnson or, you know, say another strategic, and they're like, whoa, we weren't expecting this. And it's just like, look, we, we signed a contract. We've got to deliver X, Y, and Z. We've got a plan to execute. You're coming along for the ride. And that actually usually is pretty well received. And that part, as we've grown, we've had to grow that and we've had to make pretty big investments in it. I think one thing that maybe we're quite unique in is so 10% of our employment base is targeted as PMO, project managers, program managers. It's a heavy population for any company. Yeah. But one I always believe should have been there in corporate <laughs> from the work that we always had to clean up. It's proven to be probably one of our greatest strengths and it's helped us to grow our accounts like you would anywhere else. Right. Nice. Anyway, that's probably the best answer I got for yeah. that one. That's awesome. I know we're getting close to our time here, but one, one last question maybe. Just thinking about your team and maybe a combination of like when you look to, to bring people into Locus and maybe your advice for people in general that are trying to grow in their career, like what are some of those key characteristics that you want to bring into Locus? And I think probably the same things would double as like, what's your advice to people that are trying to, to uh, make that next step? And you know, what are some of those key characteristics that are that will help them be successful? Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder, we're a little different, I suppose. So we, we have a core set of values. And I think the two that throw people the most, and it sounds good on paper, and it, it's very hard are team first and transparency. And the, I always tell, we have a lot of academic graduates that work here, and then we have a lot of institutional, right? You sort of have either a lot of younger professionals coming in for their first job, because it is in the sort of synthetic biology, you know, gene editing space. So there's not a lot of people out there that know how to do this stuff outside of that. But then you have all these industry veterans that got to come in and like run the clinic and the accounts and those types of things. So I always tell a pretty simple story is if, if you're the type of professor who wants to take their students' work and stand on stage and present it as your own, you're, you're not going to survive here. If you're the type of person that wants your students to stand on stage and present their own data, you're going to do very well here. We're looking for people who are humble. And I, don't, I can ask you a thousand questions if you're humble and you're going to tell me you are. I'm just going to tell you if you're not, you're not going to make it. And then on the team first side, 
I always sort of just say to people, you know, I think if you think back through your career of all the different bosses you've ever had, you know the difference between someone whose best interest is in you versus themselves. If you're the latter, you won't survive here because there are no individual superstars that are going to get done the absolute almost impossible tasks that are in front of us. Only a team can get them done. So if you're not humble and you can't put a team before yourself, you won't make it. And I, I try to weed out anybody from getting in here, Mike, <laughs> that actually like can't answer that question well. And I try to say it as firmly as I can so they know that we're serious about it. And we do, we do have a fairly high turnover rate, you know, certainly higher than 10, less than 20. And it varies in between. But if you can't take care of the, the team, and, and by that, I don't mean locus. I always try to clarify, like, I, I'm not, a, you, know, you don't need to be a company, you know, person. You're on a team of somewhere between three to eight people. That team means everything. That all that matters is that team successful. I don't care how many hours it takes. I don't care how difficult the task is. None of that stuff matters. You got to be ready in a startup and in an emerging company to tackle that. And only you can answer that question. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to be a part of a team that does something that gets praise for a team, come to Locus. That's and awesome. Don't. And so it, it works a lot. And honestly, you know, I do think everybody walks in the door with great intentions. And, you know, just over time, you have to work with people and you just have to work with people. I mean, sometimes you get great people. You just need to coach them and push them and you end up getting where you need to be. Everybody can get there. Everybody's got strengths. Everybody's got weaknesses. You just got to get the right person in the right role. Anyway, maybe that's my best answer for you. That's awesome. No, that's great. I love that. Love that. Uh, really helping to you know, kind of focus on the people that you have and, and grow them, put them in the right spots to succeed, give them the chance to do it. That's great. Well, well, hey, we are we are just about out of time. I want to keep a few minutes so that we can uh, keep Paul on for our little game here. And we're going to talk about some of our key takeaways here in just a few minutes. That's uh, always a good, I love that part of the show. But the next part of the show is one of my, one of the most fun parts of the show. Paul, if you've got just a few minutes, I'm going to keep you on the line for this. Nobody knows what the uh, game is because I created it today. <laughs> we'll see how fun it is. It's uh, We're going to go with uh, Ernst & Young Trivia since we have uh, some uh, alumni here. Courtney, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna see if maybe you can beat out the others. I doubt it. <laughs> You're going to beat me out because it's been 28 years. So I don't even remember. Well, go ahead, Mike. Let's see what uh, you got. Yeah, <laughs> we should be okay. There's probably some stuff here, Paul. I think you're going to get a couple of these at least. So. <laughs> All right. First question. What were the two immediate predecessor firms for Ernst & Young? And I've got options for you. A is Ernst & Ernst and Williams and & Young. B is Ernst & Winnie and Arthur Anderson. C is Ernst & Winnie and Arthur Young. And D is Ernst & Williams and Arthur Young. Who wants to go first? Can you guess? I want to say B, but I don't know if I'm right. B. All right. I'm casting my vote with D. D? D sounded like it had legs, for the record. I, I could back <laughs> D, but I, you know, B, multiple choice. That's you right. Got the percentages with you. What do you think, Courtney? I couldn't tell you. Let's just go with <laughs> A, because nobody's picked it yet. A, all right. All right, second question. Uh, in what year was the original firm that became Ernst & Young founded? So I won't give you the which that firm name was yet, but uh, it is, is it A, 1989? B, 1946, C, 1895, or D, 1929 on the uh, right as the 
Great Depression started? I say 89. 89? I'm going to say 1895. All right. 18, how about you, Danny? I wrote C down. All right. I forget what the actual date was. <laughs> Two C's and an A. Okay. Next question. In the year 2000, after all was safe from the Y2K uh, potential disaster, the consulting practice of Ernst & Young was acquired by which European company? Was it A, Renault or Renault, B, Capgemini, C, A.T. Kearney, D, none, they were acquired by Microsoft? Oh, I so want to pick D, I, 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 Capgemini. <laughs> I vote Capgemini, too. Paul says B. Danny, did you say that too? Yep. D, D would have had a whole different outcome for you and me, Mike. I guarantee <laughs> right. that. That would have been a much different outcome. That's right. What do you think, Courtney? I'm going to go with the crowd here. Go with um, the crowd. Cool. All the, the subject matter experts. That's a good, that's a good answer. That's a good yeah. answer. <laughs> all right. Last question. When Ernst & Young was formed, there was also another merger in the industry creating which ended up creating the big six accounting firms. So today, how many you know big X accounting firms are there in the world? Is the answer A, eight, B, four, C, five, or D? That's so 1990s, they don't use that terminology anymore. <laughs> I think the, the, the definition of being one of the bigs can be vague because a lot of people want to be included, but yeah. might not hit criteria and the definition is a little vague. I'm going to go with four uh, personally. Four's got legs for sure. I think it's B. I think it's four. I'm the third guest for four. (laughs) I agree. Okay. Let's go through these real quick. You guys did very well overall, (laughs) except for, except for number one, (laughs) nobody got that one right. (laughs) <laughs> so the, the the initial predecessor firms uh, were Ernst and Wenny and Arthur Young. So you guys uh, picked all the other options. <laughs> Number two, eighteen ninety five was correct. Eight, and, but we give Courtney honorable mention because Ernst and Young was founded in nineteen eighty nine. But in eighteen ninety five, Arthur Young founded his original firm. Apparently, this guy was not very much a family man. He founded the firm with his brother, and his brother, uh, you know, they got ticked off at each other, and he left, and there wasn't a lot of family love there, apparently. Okay, question three. Everybody got that one. Cap Gemini bought our consulting practice. I was, I was still there. Paul, were you still there? No, nah, I had left. Oh, you uh, left. Okay. I had left. So we had become Cap Gemini, Ernst & Young. Back to Microsoft, though. That could have been <laughs> different out there. That's right. That would have been a good one, yeah. Yeah. So too bad they didn't didn't look at us that way. And then lastly, everybody got that one right. Yep. Today we're the it's the big four, but uh when Paul and I joined it was the big six. And uh, you know, prior to that merger it was the big eight. So all right, that's it. Thanks for uh sticking around for that, Paul. Loved it. Appreciate you uh joining us for the whole show and uh giving us your time and uh insights and wish Locust the best. It sounds like uh things are going well amazing stuff you're doing and uh love to see the the next uh next few years ahead for you guys looking forward to hearing more well it's great great to see you mike and very nice to meet you both and i will certainly think good things as well about the podcast and do as much uh marketing for this as i possibly can awesome take care thanks again paul 
All right. So that was awesome. It was so great to have Paul Garofolo, the CEO of Locust Biosciences, on our show. Uh, now we're going to move into the great part of our show where we talk about some of the takeaways that we had from that conversation. Either of you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation with Paul and I am thrilled about learning about his product that his company is trying to create. And I think one of the main key takeaways for me was it's incredibly valuable with his mindset of just going past feeding resistant bacteria to antibiotics. It's how do we influence patients' lives for the better and change clinical protocols to make their lives easier? So I think when he was discussing, you know, its potential application to cancer patients and eliminating all of that antibiotic use was incredibly profound because I think we all know somebody, you know, whether you're listening or participating on the call, I think everybody knows somebody with cancer and the amount of potential that this product has is limitless. So I think that was incredible to hear. I totally agree. I totally agree. What about you, Danny? I really was shocked to find out that 60 to 80% of our cells could be bacteria. I thought that was a crazy statistic. And just the technology in general, I love how it started out as this, you know, PhD idea. And it's now the basis of this, this company and the work that they're doing for the selective removal of all those bacteria cells to be able to target specific ones and fight them. I just think that's amazing. I agree. I I couldn't believe that number either. I I, uh, <laughs> I had a good joke about it. Or I thought of a good joke about like, maybe like on Friday and Saturday night, my bacteria level goes up higher and hopefully comes down during the week when I'm <laughs> not out uh, enjoying dinners out and whatnot. But um, uh, I'm not sure if that is the cause of the, the fluctuation in our bacteria or not, <laughs> bacteria levels or not. One of the things I thought was really kind of cool was, um, you know, especially coming from a business owner perspective is is how he talked about the various relationships he had with the, the key stakeholders from the government stakeholders with BARDA to Johnson & Johnson to his investor groups and how they handled that really like a project, just focused on identifying what are our deliverables, what are the key things we need to produce in order to satisfy this customer and executing to a plan that satisfied the needs of those various entities. So I thought that was really, really insightful and is great information on how we can each make sure we're, we're meeting the key needs of our stakeholders. So that was pretty cool. Well, I think we are about at the end here, guys. That was a great conversation. We, we thank again, Paul Garofolo from uh, uh, Locust Biosciences, their founder and CEO. This again has been the Leaders in Life Sciences podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. All right. Let's, let's wrap it up. Let's move on. Uh, Please be here again next time. We're going to have another great guest on our show. We'll look forward to seeing you then. All right. Take care, guys. All right. Let's wrap this up. If you like this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. That really helps us out. And also leave us a five-star rating. That's a big help too. If you'd like, please feel free to share your thoughts in the comments as well. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time on the Leaders in Life Sciences podcast, powered by NTRA Life Sciences Consulting, where people drive results. Take care.